maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel ben Corin. This week, we had the renowned Columbia economics professor, Jeffrey Sachs, speaking about the end of American supremacy. Daniel, what was the event about? Thanks, Farah. So as you say, we had Jeffrey Sachs on our stage. He's a Columbia economics professor. He's advised governments, UN secretary generals, and even the Pope. And his area of specialty is sustainable development and the environment. But he was on our stage to talk about his vision for a new global foreign policy, one where the US shares power with emerging countries like China and Russia, and where the US abandons its previous interventionist role overseas. And the chair was the BBC's chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, good people of Intelligence Squared, we gather again on a grey evening in London to yet again discuss some great ideas of a great thinker. Now, how does it go? Make America great again? Who's that? Who's that great thinker? (laughs) Come on. And America first. We are not here tonight just to discuss or to exclusively discuss President Trump's best-known slogans, but we are here with a man who does have an idea about not just making America great again, but the world great again by putting the world first. And Jeffrey Sachs doesn't just have slogans, he has a blueprint for a new American foreign policy based in part on the end of American supremacy. Economist, 
Columbia University professor, author of numerous books on sustainable economic development and the end of poverty, which have established his reputation not just as a leading thinker, but a leading doer. Jeffrey Sachs has advised countless governments around the world, successive UN Secretary Generals, and even a few popes. And tonight, he's here to advise all of us. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to London. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, Jeffrey Sachs, the end of American supremacy and the need for a new American foreign policy. What is your big idea? First, thank you for joining me on on stage, and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for the privilege of having a discussion together this evening, which I really appreciate. Uh, you saw our president last week. Is this a man to lead the world? Uh, well, that's not quite the reaction I expected. Uh, I expected, oh my God, or take the weirdo home. Uh, Look, we're, we're not in a position to lead the world, the United States, uh, and this is, uh, I, I think, a matter of uh, some uh, need for a deep analysis and explanation for which there is no better place in the world to have it than in London, uh, which, was, uh, which is the capital of the uh, the country and the empire that preceded the American empire. Uh, so you've been there and done that. Uh, Britain led the world for 150 years. Uh, it passed the baton to the United States. My own uh, superficial uh, theory is that Brexit is a little bit of a nostalgia for an earlier time. It makes no sense, by the way, sad to say. Uh, but the United States is uh, passing through a similar historical juncture as the UK passed through uh, in its uh, ascent, followed by a subsequent relative decline. Our greatest task in the 21st century is to avoid the disasters of the 20th century, not to repeat them. Uh, the British Empire ended ultimately the worst possible way uh, in that it followed two world wars and a Great Depression, uh, which of course was the cata catastrophic period of, of the 20th century. Uh, in the 21st century, our most central challenge is to avoid the kinds of blunders that led to those catastrophes in the 20th century. Part of that involves how America behaves as the most powerful country in the world today. But by no means, in any realistic sense, the decisive uh, uh, hegemonic power that American policymakers believe the United States to be. We're already past the period of uh, where America can call the shots, and there never really was a period where America should 
call the shots decisively, except perhaps in the first 15 or 20 years after World War II when one had to pick up the pieces of a uh, completely fragmented world. But in the American mindset, we're probably somewhere still uh, in, in uh, a world that uh, maybe Mr. Churchill felt Britain was in in 1945, uh, still a dominant power, the dominant power. And a lot of what you're seeing right now in American policy and politics, most notably in our uh, new Cold War vis-a-vis China, but also in America's behavior vis-a-vis Iran or Venezuela or many other countries, is a remnant of the idea that America has decisive power, can use it effectively, should use it effectively, and need not be bound by international rules which are petty and annoying, rules such as the UN Charter. And that is the mindset of a lot of American foreign policy mainly the center-right of American foreign policy, which is still the predominant brand that we have in Washington. Uh, It involves mostly the Republicans, but also a lot of Democrats. It is a militarized vision of the world. It's a vision of the world that says America is and by right ought to be the unchallenged power in the world. It is a view that uh, especially gained uh, uh, near universal acceptance within the universe of the U.S., I should say, never internationally, but within the universe of, uh, of the U.S. with the collapse of the Soviet Union when the notion was now the U.S. is the most powerful country in the history of the world, Uh, which was a trope repeated endlessly, uh, almost on a tape cycle after 1991. And it led to a number of wars of choice by the United States, including Iraq, of course, but also wars in Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, and a number of other places, on the grounds that the U.S. was the unchallenged, unrivaled supreme power. Well, none of it has gone very well for the last 25 years. Uh, This has been a misguided bit of a fantasy, but it's especially uh, fantastic in the meaning of uh, unreal in a world where China in particular, but I would say more and more of Asia, including India and other parts of Asia, are catching up technologically become a larger and larger part of the world economy inevitably, are still much poorer than the U.S. or U.K. in per-person terms, but are so populous that the weight of those economies worldwide is large, where their technological and military capacities are sufficiently strong that uh, the U.S. should not consider itself the unrivaled power, and therefore where the whole idea that there is one dominant power of the world, once upon a time the British Empire, now the American 
uh, Pax Americana, is a passé idea, but not passé in the actual instrumentation of power the way that America uh, views it. In this country, there is still this longed-for special relationship. Our one special relationship is that you taught us English. (laughs) We're grateful. You speak it much better than we do. We're trying. We're hicks on the other side of the Atlantic. But you should be careful about this special relationship. We're a little weird. We're not so special. And Britain should not view the U.S. as probably some British strategists continue to do as that special relationship with the unrivaled power of the world and therefore the one that one must grab onto and hold onto for dear life, which has been British foreign policy for the past few decades. I hope that Trump's visit, I'll try again, should convince you That's not a good idea. Please take care of yourselves because we need you as a good, constructive, leading country within Europe. And we really need you because I like English a lot. Uh, And we need you for that too. You are uh, the custodians uh, of our common culture and uh, language, but don't rely on the United States thinking that that is the kind of the ace in the hole or the sure way for the UK to make sure that it's not going to lose anything. Be careful. That's my main message. Thank Thank you you very much. Your words are are well taken and I'm sure will will be listened to here. Let's start with our first section, Intervention in American Leadership Overseas. It is true that we are seeing worldwide the rise of regional powers, which are eclipsing a lot of the leadership that America once exercised. But it is also abundantly clear that many in the world still view the Americans as supreme. You've just talked about how Theresa May was desperate for Donald Trump to visit, not just Donald Trump, but the whole family was given the highest highest of of welcomes here with all the pomp and and pageantry. Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, made sure that President Trump was the first world leader to meet the new emperor. When Kim Jong-un wanted to reach out to the world, you know, Putin was somewhere down the line. He wanted to see President Trump. Whenever there's going to be a resolution of the Iran nuclear problem, in the same way that America was absolutely essential in getting the 2015 deal, Without the United States, there won't be a resolution of this deal. So for all of the decline in American preeminence, don't we see around the world still a belief and still enough evidence to say America still rules supreme? America is uh, still powerful, no question about it. And for Japan, uh, in uh, Prime Minister Abe's perception, uh, America is still the essential bulwark for Japanese security. It's the nuclear umbrella. Uh, I think uh, in the UK, it has been the absolute uh, unquestioned standard of foreign policy for 
prime ministers of all parties basically since 1956 don't deviate from the United States. Uh, this was the message that Bill Clinton gave to Tony Blair that set Tony Blair off to join the Iraq war. Whatever you do, side with the U.S. This has been taken for granted. It's just not smart. It is not sensible and it is not stabilizing for the world to maintain these anachronistic ideas. But the world still looks to America, doesn't it? Well, a lot of the world looks to America, and America has instruments uh, that it has, can use temporarily. Uh, for example, these extraterritorial sanctions, or which, weirdly enough, the U.S. said to a world that had agreed on a uh, nuclear arrangement with Iran that was actually voted by the UN Security Council, which is the law of the world under the UN Charter. And it is true, uh, the US said, don't do that, and Europe fell to pieces. Uh, no, we want to, please let us, we're gonna fight you, we're gonna do this, but Europe couldn't organize anything to resist, it, it is absolutely the case. Partly because of Brexit, which was tearing up Europe, diverting a lot of attention, waste of energy, when Europe should have stood up, actually, and said to the United States, you're making a bad mistake and you're violating international law and we don't accept it. And by the way, that would have, believe me, pushed back successfully and hard, much more successfully than the European uh, fears uh, held. Because immediately Merkel, Chancellor Merkel said, oh my God, we have to do what the United States says. Mm. Britain always does what the United States says. Uh, and it's true that nobody was able to make a coherent response. I'm suggesting though, don't count on that being a smart idea. First, what the U.S. is doing is not smart. It's a terribly misguided idea. The idea is explicitly to try to bring down the Iranian regime because American foreign policy, and it's true, we learned it from British imperial foreign policy, is if you don't like the other government, you try to replace the other government. That's Although not normal. President Trump says that he's not interested in regime President change. President Trump says anything. Don't mm. listen. Watch. Mm. Don't listen to what the man says. The man is mentally ill. Seriously. Seriously. Watch what is done. This is very important. Watch what is done. A couple of days ago, a tape was released of Mr. Pompeo, also not a genius, let me say, uh, our foreign minister. Uh, and he was speaking to a, uh, a group uh, off the record. Somebody taped it. Somebody released it. And he was explaining about Venezuela. It's important. He said, from the first day that I became the head of the CIA, we were out to unify the opposition to bring down Maduro. Okay, I want to parse that for one moment. The way U.S. foreign policy works is through 
not what you observe in public, but what you are not meant to observe in public. The CIA is our private army. That's not a secret. And the job of the CIA, in addition to collecting intelligence, is to overthrow governments. That's its official job in the 1947 National Security Act. That's not a critic saying that. That's its job. So Mr. Pompeo said in this unguarded moment, that was my job from the first day to organize the opposition of Venezuela. What a strange job for an American head of an intelligence agency. Except if you understand what American foreign policy is. American foreign policy is a militarized policy that aims to create friendly governments, and if governments are not friendly, aims to overthrow those governments. Okay, well, let's, let's, and, look, back at, let's look back at Obama. And, and so, let's, let's, let's see, is, who represents American foreign policy? We had a Democratic administration under Barack Obama who said, I'm throwing out the Washington playbook. I no longer want to have a militarized response. No, he didn't to, say that. He, he, no longer, he held back. No, he didn't. It. He went into CS. He provided military support in Syria, but he didn't go as far as some would, no, would, no, no. would have wanted what did, him to what go. Did, what did Barack Obama do? It's important to understand, because it's actually not well understood. He signed an order a secret order, but it's well known, it's called Operation Timber Sycamore, to instruct the CIA to partner with Saudi Arabia to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. This is interesting. Uh, this was actually a formal alliance, it's called a presidential finding, a formal alliance of the United States and Saudi Arabia to overthrow the Syrian government. This is hardly discussed, by the way, in the media, which is a little bit weird because what is discussed in the media is not this, but the fact that Obama did not respond to an event. There were huge arguments within his administration, as you know, about whether they should go for regime change. President Obama himself, from what we understand, from what he said, from what his advisor said, he hesitated. He said, we know how this ends. No, no, and that's not... And in fact, not, he called, he, called not, him, he said, Libya, Libya changed my mind. Iraq changed my mind. Yeah, Libya was exactly the same. It was the UK, US, and France uh, using NATO to overthrow a government. But that started in uh, March 2011 and concluded in the fall of 2011. The same time, it was the same months, President Obama and Hillary Clinton said Assad must go. It was exactly the same time uh, of, of the uh, um, so-called Arab Spring. And the Friends of Syria were created and the President made this secret finding to overthrow the government. He, he didn't not do it, he did it. Okay, and they put in billions of dollars of weapons, logistical support, and military bases in Turkey to overthrow Assad. They blew up the country for five years. Have no doubt about it. That's where the refugees came from. There was no war without the U.S. and Saudi Arabia funding a war. Okay, let's leave Syria. Okay, okay. Let's, no. let's leave Syria for the moment. Let's no, no, leave. It's, it's just yes. really important yes. to understand. And by the way, yes. he was our good president. <laughs> he only kept the troops in Afghanistan, in Syria, 
overthrowing Libya, but he did one good thing, which was trying to do something peaceful with Iran. But he caused a lot of wars. Hillary loved wars. It's a problem in the United States because this is bipartisan. This is not simply one party, and it didn't start with Trump. Trump's just the craziest of them. Not even the most militarized, I mean the most mentally ill. But the others have been at war for a long time. We constantly overthrow governments. And this has not changed, and it hasn't changed with Trump, because that's the question you asked me. And I'll tell you why it hasn't changed with Trump. Trump is trying to starve countries to submission right now. But when I say starve, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. If you look at what's happening in Venezuela, they concocted this fanciful story of putting a person up and calling him president and then saying, we support him, he's president, and then confiscating the reserves of the country, confiscating the foreign exchange of the country, and causing a collapse of the imports of food into Venezuela with the idea that the military would change sides and there would be a coup. You couldn't make this up. This is MI6, CIA, Iran, 1953. Except the U.S. keeps doing it. You have given up that thing to argue for spend your time let's, on Brexit. Let's, let's, leave, okay. Okay. let's leave American Let's leave American in the world for a moment. Um, in your book, you criticize NATO's expansion, saying that that is what has fueled Russian Russia policy. If someone from NATO was here, they would say, well, actually, it's a good chicken and the egg, isn't it? That actually it was what happened, with, what happened in Georgia in 2008, what happened with the annexation of Crimea, what happened in, in the Donbass in Ukraine. That is why Baltic states are really worried. That is why NATO has been expanding. So you want, though, do you think it is possible to have a, a world of global cooperation with Russia included? Yeah, so my thought is that Statecraft for thousands of years has been empires and war, and uh, we have a theory of that in international relations called the realist theory. Basically, get real, Sachs. This is the real world. Stop your daydreams. Countries fight each other. They are rivals with each other. You better arm. You better have peace, uh, and so on. And That is actually how the world has been for thousands of years. And I'm coming with the audacity, and many people would say the stupidity, to say it doesn't have to be that way. So that's, let's, I want to get the the, the points clear. I actually think we have a vision that could be a practical reality that's better than what we had for most of human history. I think the UN actually is something new. It didn't just start in 1945, but we have the makings of an idea that is, it goes back to biblical ideas to Isaiah, after all, but in practical terms, maybe you could date it starting to uh, Immanuel Kant, the a uh, philosopher when he wrote uh, Perpetual Peace in 1794, 
when he talked about a global community of republics that could live peacefully with each other and uh, in normal affairs where the monarch would not send the uh, poor sons of bitches off to war. And that was a good idea. It uh, it was followed immediately by the Napoleonic Wars, incidentally. Uh, It did not have uh, much practical resonance. Uh, There was the idea of the Concert of Europe uh, in 1815, that uh, maybe Europe could govern by a balance of power. It lasted uh, more or less with a few bumps in the road, with the Crimean War, uh, with the the, uh, uh, Prussian-Austrian Wars, and uh, all of that uh, up until the 1890s, and that equilibrium ended up breaking down, and World War I eventually was the outcome of the collapse of that. Then, of course, uh, the idea of the League of Nations was to be the successor, and the United States was completely idiotic and our president had a stroke uh, in the middle of uh, all of that and the U.S. never joined the League of Nations. The Versailles Treaty was a, was a harsh treaty and we ended up, as Keynes predicted, uh, with a second war uh, that ensued uh, just 20 years after the fast, onset of the first. Fast forward to... And then fast, fast forward. forward and the reason I say this is that two decisive things happened in 1945. One was we tried again to have an institutional arrangement that wasn't the same damned old thing with the United Nations. It's probably the greatest thing the United States ever suggested uh, because we suggested a lot of dumb things too. The second thing that happened in 1945, of course, was the atomic bomb which fundamentally changed everything in history. We're in a new era that is fundamentally different from the past. We can blow ourselves up to smithereens now and wait in about 15 minutes in ways that were never true before. So I think something changed in 1945. One is that the balance of power realist theory even if it's good 99% of the time, is actually no good because the 1% is the goddamn thing that's going to get us all killed. But even though you... And, and, And the second thing is, excuse me, we invented an institutional form that actually makes sense and is now universal because all countries in the world are members of the United Nations. It's flawed, it's weak, I spend all my time with the UN in the last 20 years, so uh, I'm fully aware of all of the weakness and the problems of it, but it actually happens to be the right idea. It's the one that could actually keep us alive. So it's worth constructively making work. And this is the context in which my thinking about Russia or China or others should be understood, which is we're not in the same game as we were before. It's crazy for my country, which has 4.2% of the world's population, to think it can run the world. But honestly, I'm telling you, my strategists in my country believe that they run the world. I'm telling you, that's the mindset. And you can observe from the actual behavior, the arrogance, 
that's involved in this and how dangerous it is and how we screw up, yeah. sorry with the language, each time because none of it works. Sorry, is okay. Libya in good shape? Is Next. Syria okay. in good shape? Is Iraq in good shape? Is Venezuela in good shape? Has, has the Iranian regime been overthrown? It's all stupid because none of it works. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let me open it up to your questions. Okay. Let's, let's, let's have a question for the audience. My name is Michael Bakker. Um, I don't dispute your points about the American supremacy and how it's used to, but do you think if, in the realist um, theory of nations, Russia and China surely would aspire to be as powerful or more powerful than the U.S., do you think we can trust them with that power? I'd rather be on the the U.S. side if if we had a choice. Please, five minutes about China. It's the (laughs) most important issue we face in the world right now. Okay? China's history that is relevant for us starts in 1839. Remember that year? That's when British free traders insisted that China accept a shipment of opium. And when the Chinese government had the temerity to say, we don't want that ship coming into our harbor because it's got opium and we don't want an opium addiction more than we have, Britain invaded China. That was the first opium wars. Then, ten years later, as a rebellion to the humiliation of the Qing monarchy, dynasty, the Taiping rebellion broke out, and 20 million people died. Well, in the midst of this, Britain and France said, it's time for us to demand even more rights in China. A second war broke out and the Summer Palace was burned down. That was the second Opium War. 
Then the imperialists came in big time. The United States got jealous. It came into the act. I won't recount all of the glorious history, but it led to another rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, and then the imperial powers put down the Boxer Rebellion, and then the monarchy fell. Uh, in, uh, it collapsed in its uh, legitimacy in 1911. The, people's re- the Republic was uh, declared. That fell into civil war, and then Japan invaded. And Japan invaded in 1931, and Japan was defeated uh, in the Pacific War in 1945. Then there was a civil war for four years. And then Mao came to power. He was a disaster, of course, great leap forward. Another 20 million people starved to death. Then the Cultural Revolution. Then Mao died in 1976. The Gang of Four was arrested in 1977. And a miracle happened. Deng Xiaoping reappeared, came to power in 1978, and said after 140 rather difficult years, let's have some peace. Let's have some normalcy. Let's try to have some development in our impoverished, war-torn, stressed, famine-ridden country. What was the per capita income of China in 1978 compared to the U.S.? Two and a half percent of the U.S. per capita income. That was 140 years of disaster. Deng Xiaoping said, we want to internationalize, we want to be quiet, we want to develop. China has followed a model that Japan set for development called the Flying Geese Model. Korea followed it, Taiwan followed it, Hong Kong followed it, Singapore followed it, now China's following it. It's a basic strategy, well rehearsed for East Asian development that starts with labor-intensive manufacturing and then walks up the technology ladder. China's doing that. It's doing it peacefully, it's doing it brilliantly, It's doing it successfully. It's ending poverty. And lo and behold, China's income now compared to the United States, 16%. Okay, it has uh, increased in per capita terms relative. The gap was 2.5%. Now it's 16%. China's still a relatively poor, middle-income developing country but it's got a lot of people. And in purchasing power terms, it is a third of the U.S. level. That's annoying for the United States because it's got four times the population. Now, if you go four times one-third, you get the aggregate size of China relative to the U.S., four-thirds at international prices. China's bigger than the U.S. now, in absolute terms, measured at international prices. Measured at market prices, it's four times one-sixth. It's two-thirds of the level, but it's still a poor country minding its own business. It hasn't gone to one war. It has not gone to one war. It has not overthrown anybody, except, sorry, Pol Pot in 1978, sorry. 
except in Vietnam with the Holocaust that was underway, the genocide of Pol Pot. Other than that, no wars, no occupations. One little naval base, by the way. The U.S. has 700 overseas naval bases. China has one little naval base in Djibouti right now. That's it. But the U.S. policymakers are freaking out. They're the aggressors. They're the new threat. They're the existential threat. This is America for you, honestly. The truth is, by the way, if China's going to have a normal life on our planet, it's going to be much bigger than the United States economy. So the only way that the U.S. could be dominant is if China doesn't develop. That's a pretty dumb idea, by the way. It happens to be now official U.S. policy. We have to stop China's development. You can't believe what is being written in Washington right now. We have to contain China. China's the threat. China's militarized. China's this. China's that. While the U.S. is actively engaged militarily in 14 countries in the world right now, and military bases in 70 countries in the world, suddenly it's China that's the great threat. And the idea is China must have stolen everything we know. Because how else could they do anything that we can do? This is absolutely believed, by the way. But I can tell you, they're pretty clever in China. And they have a right, actually, to understand how AI works and how digital technologies work and how advanced manufacturing works. And they're doing a good job, thank you, in we this. We asked you then about Huawei, this and... And, and, and Huawei, big, yes. I've waited I mean, to see one, one piece of evidence, just even one, and there isn't one. And your government was tied up in knots over this because the security part of the government said, we can't find anything, but the political part said, oh my God, don't say that. Who leaked this? But what because Hunt's somebody had the nerve to tell the truth here. And you cannot tell the truth if the United States is asking you to tell something else. Why but somebody it... leaked the truth in this country that there's not a shred of evidence that Huawei is a threat. Huawei's biggest threat, probably, in my guess, is that if we install Huawei equipment, then it will be harder for the U.S. to spy on us. That's my guess. What about Jeremy Hunt saying, and I think he, he's raising a question that, that many countries are asking. He said, we have to ask whether one company should have a commanding monopoly in such a crucial technology. Well, I think it's ridiculous. Hmm. You know, this is what international competition is about. You have these switches and you have 5G being produced by uh, Ericsson, by Nokia uh, routers and so on. But actually, Huawei's done a good job. They're competing right now. So that, therefore, we have to kill it. Okay, and, and let's, by take, the way, let's take a question then. Thank you very much for your insights, um, Dr. Sachs. I am a huge fan. Um, does the end of American supremacy mean the rise of a diversely multipolar world or the rise of China um, and another hegemony calling the shots? Do you trust China more than you trust the U.S. to lead this charge, given initiatives like the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiatives, which I think we haven't touched on and is something that uh, needs to be uh, talked about? 
um, and this opinion, this idea that uh, through the BRI, um, and I come from Pakistan, China has, in, has invested $60 billion in Pakistan and is now the highest proportion of uh, debt that Pakistan owes externally is to China, um, is that through the BRI, China enslaves people non-militarily. Thank you for your questions. Yeah. And one last one up at the top. We're not necessarily talking about the end of American supremacy. We're actually talking about potentially an era of American aggression. Now, is that possibly sort of the thrashings of a power that feels that it's losing its supremacy? Yeah. Or is this something which is, you know, an extension to some extent of what you were saying earlier, but is it just a renewed sense of uh, aggression on the world stage? And so you is you see it America personal? becoming more aggressive yeah. now. So yeah. is, it, is it not only not the end of American supremacy, it is actually, in my view, potentially an era of, of American supremacy? And is this personalized to this present administration, or do you think that future presidents would pursue this path? Thank you. Thank Excellent you. questions. Great. The Belt and Road so, Initiative, Pakistan's indebtedness. The, the Belt and Road Initiative is a very good idea, rather uh, poorly implemented so far. China's approach in the Belt and Road Initiative is to ask the national government, what do you want? So China's not doing anything that isn't the first request of the Pakistan government. The Pakistan government said, we want electricity. So the Chinese are building coal-fired power plants. Terrible idea, by the way. Terrible idea. Terrible for Pakistan, terrible for the world, terrible for China, because it's all going to go bankrupt. But the reason they're doing it is a kind of bureaucratic and political reason, which is that the way the NDRC works, which is the body that oversees this, is that the foreign ministry asks the counterpart, what do you want? And then the uh, national, uh, the, the uh, um, uh, development and reform uh, committee implements. And it's so poorly done. My advice constantly to the Chinese is learn some investment analysis because you're making all the typical mistakes. It's not to make Pakistan bankrupt, though it will. That's not the purpose. It's just lousy investments asked for by the Pakistan government, assented to by the Chinese government, funded from the Chinese Development Bank. And so we need to make, and the, but the basic idea of the Belt and Road Initiative is a good idea. It is to establish an infrastructure throughout Eurasia. That's a good idea. And if we were sensible, Europe would say to China, this is good, but not the way you're doing it. We'll partner with you because we need to modernize infrastructure in Europe all the way to Central Asia. You want to modernize infrastructure from the, west, the east coast of China all the way to Central Asia. We'll meet up in uh, Tbilisi, thank you or we'll meet up in Baku, but let's do it green. Let's do it with renewable energy. Let's do it with state-of-the-art technology. And this would be an absolutely sensible EU, China, Russia, India 
program and Pakistan. I mean, in other words, it could be a Eurasian strategy that could be a lot better. The idea that this is deliberate, that China's deliberately trying to make bad loans is a wild fiction. I know how it works. I'm close to watching this process. It's basically done without any sound investment analysis and without the larger framework of sustainable development. And that's why President Xi said in this summit in April, a lot of us were complaining bitterly, stop building these ridiculous coal plants. We support Belt and Road, but don't do that. And the president said, President Xi said, we understand we did a lot of things wrong. We now are setting up some sustainable development framework for this. Let's hope that something is better. But the institutionalization of this idea has been very weak up until now. And the very last one about America, sees America becoming more aggressive? Yeah, America um, has had a militarized foreign policy since 1945. And the Cold War was also, even, even with Stalin, but certainly after Stalin's death, did not have to happen the way that it happened by any means. Churchill knew this as well. We took the hardest line view in, uh, in, in uh, the National Security Doctrine number 68 in 1950, written by Paul Nitze. It's worth reading. It's a kind of America at its paranoid best because it said the Soviet Union is the implacable foe that must conquer the whole world in order for its success. This was actually the most extreme interpretation conceivable of the Soviet idea. And George Kennan, who was the author of containment with the Soviet Union, objected tremendously to Nietzsche's uh, national security doctrine uh, that Truman adopted in uh, uh, in uh, this uh, uh, NS-68. So, we went on a Cold War. We went to dozens of proxy wars. We went to the Vietnam War. We've been at this for a long time. We established this archipelago of U.S. military bases around the world. And when the Soviet Union ended in 1992 the dominant strategy became to put, like in the game of risk, put the U.S. markers on the remaining pieces of the board. And there's famous interviews of Wesley Clark, who was NATO commander, who explains how Paul Wolfowitz explained this to him uh, at the Pentagon after 1992. And what Wolfowitz said to Wesley Clark was, we now understand Russia doesn't have the power to intervene anymore. So now we can clean up the Middle East before there's a new threat. And, Wolf, and uh, Clark says to Wolfowitz, what do you mean a new threat? You mean China? And Wolfowitz says, yeah, I mean China. So the idea is the U.S. needs to finish putting the markers on the board. Okay, we ended up with 25 years of wars in the Middle East, not one of them successful. 
Now Trump is not fighting as many wars like the question was asked rightly. He's not an isolationist. He's a complete unilateralist. There's no isolation in this. He's not saying we go back to, uh, uh, to something else, but he is, for the moment, trying to use economic pressures rather than war. That's better than using war. But don't confuse it for isolationism. This is an incredibly aggressive unilateralist policy that literally is aiming to starve two countries right now, two major countries, Iran and Venezuela. That's the idea, to get the regimes overthrown. That's not That's, isolationism. Thank you very much for those insightful answers to the questions. We would like to just hear from you on climate, because there is a discussion in Britain about what's come to be known as a Green New Deal. The Greens Party says now that they mentioned it as long ago as 2007, when the financial crisis first, uh, first erupted. There's a lot of talk about it, as you know, in the United States, although Nancy Pelosi says, well, I agree, we need to have legislation on climate change, but she says it's green new dream rather than deal. We have time for you just to briefly tell us some of your top thoughts on that, because I know this is one of your, your, your main concerns, and then we may have time for one last question. Great. So I'll, I'll try to be a little quicker. Just to say, when the UK voted that climate change is an emergency, bravo, bravo. It's an emergency. Honest to God, it's truly an emergency. Okay? Uh, I won't say exactly more about that right now, but all the climate science supports that vision. This is why the counterpart of everything that I've been saying is we need to cooperate on important things because climate change cannot be solved by the most beautiful, brilliant actions of the United Kingdom or by all of Europe, or by Europe and the United States, if it's not solved together with China, with India, with South Asia, with the Gulf, it's not, with Russia, it's not solved, period. That's just carbon arithmetic. So we need cooperation on this. What fundamentally is happening right now in the United States is part of our weirdness, so I'll take two minutes to explain it. We signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992. That was the last, and we ratified it in the fall of 1992. That was the last piece of climate change legislation passed by the US Congress 27 years ago. Why? Simple, because the American political system is profoundly corrupted by oil and gas money. Okay? We are a corporatocracy in the United States. We are fueled and run by corporate cash in Congress. Congress is on the take. We don't have rotten boroughs. We have a rotten Congress. Our annual or our election cycles cost six to eight billion dollars an election cycle now. Who pays for that? Not the small donors, the large bundled money. Wall Street, the oil and gas industry, the military industrial complex. This is big bucks in American politics. It's a corrupted, broken system legalized by the Supreme Court 
in the Citizens United decision. This is why we can't pass anything right now. Nancy Pelosi's just awful to have said that. She's, ugh. <laughs> On many counts, we should be impeaching this guy because he's a danger every day that he's president and we should have a Green New Deal. The truth is there is no Green New Deal plan though, it's just a phrase, a nice one because the New Deal's the best thing we ever did in domestic policy in the United States and Franklin Roosevelt was the best president we ever had in our history. He also thought up the United Nations, uh, which was a, a good thing too. So she shouldn't be dumping on it, she should be saying this is an emergency and we're going to get moving on it. Why doesn't she? Because the Democrats are half corrupted. The Republicans, by the way, 100%. I mean it, literally, you just go through the list, which I do for a living, because I testify in Congress. And before I testify, look, how much did you take? You take, you take, you take. They're all on the take. It's public, a lot of this. Not all of it, but a lot of it. You go to a website called opensecrets.org and click on any senator or congressman, you can find out who has given them contributions. And you go to the Republican members of Congress, they're all on oil and gas money. So you're staring at them and they're looking at you like you're an idiot. Mr. Sachs, don't you understand anything? Yeah, I do understand you're on the take, Mr. Congressman. And that's the situation that we're in right now. In the meantime, the planet has warmed 1.1 degrees. We reached 414 parts per million carbon in May, the highest level in the last three million years on the planet. We have already built in another 0.3 or 0.4 degrees C warming. We're already in the zone that's going to destroy the ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland. And Nancy Pelosi says it's a dream. All right. This is a mess, not a dream. Someone. A very, very quick question right from that top, right there, number four. And I know it'll be a good question. Very short, because we only have three, four minutes left. I just want to know what you think of the proposal to create a parliamentary assembly of the United Nations starting off with appointed parliamentarians just with the rights to monitor and comment, growing over time into a world parliament with legislative power if it proves its worth. What do you think of that proposal? A good global question yeah. to end. Yeah. I think uh, this kind of idea of moving to improve, update, and operationalize the United Nations is vital for us. Uh, and there are many things that are problematic with the UN. Uh, actually, in the Security Council, which has not been reformed uh, for decades and basically still has the same five permanent members as were chosen in 1945, the really odd part of the Security Council is that Asia has three of the 15 seats, which is 20% of the Security Council, 
but Asia has 60% of the world's population. So we have a critical global body that really is not representative of the world at the core of the war and peace issues. This is a, a, a basic challenge. Making the UN work is, in my view, of existential significance. And the, the General Assembly, which is one country, one vote, has a kind of merit of, uh, of uh, each country having a say, but it is uh, a say that gives uh, the smallest countries of a few tens of thousands the same one vote as uh, India, which uh, is or soon will be the world's largest population of uh, 1.4 billion, and that doesn't quite make sense. We're not going to get to this kind of reform very easily. Uh, and very fast. We can't get to any UN reform right now. Uh, and the US, the real fear of a lot of people is the US is going to pull out of the UN uh, and um, it just uh, gives the uh, tremors of what happened uh, exactly a hundred years ago, uh, which is the US not signing on to the League of Nations and having the US outside is dangerous, and uh, so there's a, a lot of reticence. And China's not so constructive on the UN reform also. Uh, it's basically freezing the organization of, uh, of the Security Council as well. So these are uh, really important issues and very difficult to deal with and exceptionally difficult these days where we're just breaking up the international system before our eyes and even those who want reform are just hoping by closing their eyes that, that things won't break up as badly as uh, Mr. Trump uh, sometimes seems to, uh, to insist. God, what a terrible way to end. Uh, so yes. l l let, me, let me end on a, uh, a, a more reasonable, rational uh, note for just one moment. The things that most of us want are shared all over the world. And so it is absolutely wrong. I don't know of a single case or a single country uh, but certainly not among the major powers where there are implacable forces that are beyond solution. Most of our conflicts don't even have any basis at all, much less being implacable. And I, I was fiddling with my phone because I wanted to read you uh, uh, just a, a short statement from President Kennedy who... I quoted earlier, and I love uh, for his attempt to make peace uh, that may have cost him his life also in 1963. But he said something quite beautiful when he visited uh, Ireland uh, in that last uh, trip of his life in the summer of 1963. He said, indeed, across the gulfs and barriers that now divide us, we must remember that there are no permanent enemies. Hostility today is a fact, but it is not a ruling law. 
The supreme reality of our time is our indivisibility as children of God and our common vulnerability on this planet. And I think those are fitting words to end. Thank you. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you. Thank you very much for spending. You're a very, very busy man. He was on the phone right up to the last minute before he came on the stage, giving advice to different people around the world. Thank you for drawing on your deep historical knowledge and sharing your analytical insights. And I, I think giving us some hope that states and leaders and peoples can work better. And I think we want to, we want to share your view that not only is it desirable, that it's also possible. Thank you very much, Thank Jeffrey you. Sachs. Yeah.